Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, supported by the MRC, we discover how researchers are letting the light shine in, literally, by bringing discoveries about the underlying genetic faults that cause eye diseases, all the way through to game-changing clinical trials of gene therapy designed to save sight. Before we get started, a quick heads up about a brand new series brought to you by the Genetic Society, Genetic Shambles, a series of live discussions, interviews and podcasts presented by Robin Ince of Cosmic Shambles fame in association with the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. Available fortnightly from Wednesday 1st of July, there will be 12 episodes featuring in-depth discussions with some of the leading lights of genetics, covering topics such as Why do diseases affect some people more than others? Where are we on the development of drugs and vaccines that will help to fight the coronavirus pandemic and other viruses? What have we learned from the human genome and how has it helped us to understand inherited traits and improve our medicines? And what does the future hold for genetic research in a scientific and ethical sense? Hopefully, we'll be running audio versions of the episodes on the Genetics Unzipped feed, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out. Head over to the How to Listen page on Genetics Unzipped, or just search for Genetics Unzipped in your podcast app of choice, and check out CosmicShambles.com for more great science stuff from the Shambles team. These unprecedented times, as I believe we must call them, have put a big dent into everyone's plans, including teams who had spent months planning a summer full of great events to inspire and inform the public about science. This month, we should have been hopping on the train up to Edinburgh to interview researchers and patients focusing on genetic eye diseases as part of a fantastic public engagement event organised by the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Molecular Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. But that's not happening. So instead, we thought we'd bring a little bit of it directly to you. Our stay-at-home roving reporter, Georgia Mills, has been taking a closer look. The last book I read was in 1994. I was sitting um, with my back to the setting sun in midsummer and I was able to start reading a novel in, in June 1994. I finally finished that book in, in December 1994. It took me that long and that was the last paper book I ever tried reading. This is Ken Reed. When he was just 26 years old, he was told he had a degenerative eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa. So when people lose their sight through trauma, um, that's, that's instant and everything, is, everything happens and all the changes have to be made in one step. When you lose your sight through a degenerative condition, then you're changing constantly and having to cope with different experiences. I guess it's something that we're all kind of used to just now when we keep talking about the new normal. And in in my world, we keep having new normals happening as something that we had that I had taken for granted, something that I'd adjusted to and determined, developed a new way of, of coping. Then I find that I can't do that anymore, and I've got to change again. The idea of losing your vision can be terrifying. In fact, in surveys, people consistently rank it as their most valued sense. 
but the reality is many of us will have to face deteriorating eyesight thanks to genetic eye diseases. Later, we'll come back to Ken and find out why he's given an unusual donation to help research into RP, and we'll explore the cutting edge of how gene therapy is being used to treat it. Plus, we'll find out how to grow an eye in a dish. But first, let's take a look at RP and the other diseases like it that can spell trouble for our eyesight. Genetic causes of eye disease are a huge problem. Chloe Stanton is a scientist in the MRC Human Genetics Unit at the IGMM in Edinburgh, where she works on the genetic causes of eye disease. In the UK alone, there are probably around 2 million people affected by visual loss as a result of genetic causes. Of these people, there are probably more than 350 inherited eye diseases affecting them. And of those inherited eye diseases, there are probably more than 500 genes causing them. Some of these conditions are very common, and many of us will know people who are directly affected by them. For example, when I was working on age-related macular degeneration, I spoke to my grandmother regularly, and every single time I spoke to her, she would tell me about her friend who lived up the road whose eyes were affected by age-related macular degeneration. Every time my grand spoke to me, she was very keen that I should hurry up my research and find a cure for Betty who lived up the road. And why is this such a big problem? Well, I mean, the eye is obviously very sensitive to impactful changes in how it works. It's a very delicately structured organ. It has a very precise visual cascade that needs to happen exactly in the right way in order to transmit the the signal that your eyes are getting, the light hitting the photosensitive cells at the, the back of the eye and the retina and transmitting that to the brain. You can see that it would easily go wrong and that could be catastrophic for the individual. Macular degeneration is the most prevalent cause of eyesight loss. The macula is this sweet spot of the retina, which is the layer of light-sensitive cells at the back of our eyes. It provides our most accurate colour vision. So when the macula breaks down or degenerates, this central bit of our vision starts to get blurry and it makes it difficult to do things like pick out faces or read. And while macular degeneration can have a massive impact on your life, it is usually age-related, so it doesn't present itself until around 50 to 60 years old. But some genetic eye conditions strike much, much younger, and RP is one of those. Retinitis pigmentosa affects the retina, which is the photosensitive layer at the back of the eye. Um, The specific cell types that are affected are the photoreceptors, primarily rods in the first instance, and later on in the development of the disease, the cone cells. So rod cells are the ones that are responsible for vision in dim light, and that is why night blindness appears to be one of the early stages of the disease. RP is an umbrella term for a group of conditions that all affect the retina in this way, and there are a lot of genes that can be involved. More than 100 genes have been found to have mutations in retinitis pigmentosa patients. So although each gene mutation might be very rare, the number of people affected by it quite rapidly increases. In fact, about one in 3,000 to 4,000 individuals would be affected by retinitis pigmentosa. And because so many genes can be involved, this means that RP can be inherited in several different ways. It can be an autosomal dominant condition in which you only need to inherit one faulty gene from one of your parents. 
in an autosomal recessive way in which you need to inherit a faulty copy of the gene from both of your parents, or it can be an X-linked condition, in which case the faulty gene is carried on the X chromosome. In this case, the disorder affects sons more severely than daughters, and this is the case for people who are affected by a specific subset of retinitis pigmentosa caused by the RPGR gene. But since the early 90s, huge advances have been made in identifying some of the genes at play, which has made a big difference to the community. It's so valuable to them to know what is causing their condition. It lets them plan, it lets them make diagnosis so much easier for the next generation. But we have to bear in mind that retinitis pigmentosa is caused by over 100 genes. There are about 3,000 known mutations for retinitis pigmentosa, so we still don't know all of the genetic causes of the disease. We're developing more knowledge all the time about this. And it's even more complicated than that because different mutations have different levels of severity, different rates of progression. And even with a diagnosis, there's still not much we can actually do when someone finds out they have this. I mean, that's the awful thing about it. At the minute, there aren't really any ways of curing the disease at the moment. That's Chloe Stanton from the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh. So let's go back to Ken. He was diagnosed with RP at just 26 years old. But even then, it wasn't completely unexpected. I can now recognise events and incidents going right back, certainly to when I was a teenager, possibly even earlier. I, one one the early ones I remember was um, I always had very poor night sight and could never understand how people could do things in the dark. Going to discos was an absolute... Yeah, Most people probably don't remember what discos in the 70s were like, but they were just dark. <laughs> and you had this lovely sort of um, interaction where it was very noisy, it was very dark, and there were some flashing lights. I could see nothing. And trying to find somebody to dance with was, was a real torment, and I didn't know how people managed it. So thinking back through that kind of an escapade, it, uh, I realised that my RP was obviously affecting my sight even at that stage. I remember playing Trivial Pursuit not long after it was first launched and I just couldn't tell the difference between orange and pink. So it wasn't colour blindness, it was colour differentiation. Uh, so these things just began to accumulate. So uh, an eye test at my work said, mm, your eyes don't seem to be going too well, which you, you probably, probably ought to go and see your optometrist. So I did. And uh, they mentioned this condition, retinitis pigmentosa. Have you ever heard of it? At that stage, I'd never heard of it. There was no history of it in my family. And um, I was referred from my optometrist to my GP, from my GP to the eye hospital. So I went to the eye hospital and they confirmed the diagnosis and said, thanks very much, goodbye. What was that like, that moment for you, when you were given this, this name of, of what was going on? In a way, it was kind of too, too pronged, really. It was quite a shock to be told I had this condition that I'd never heard of. I couldn't pronounce it. I think when I went home, I said, I've got retinitis pigmentosis or something like that. And there was no internet to go and look it up on back then. And, and I was kind of told, you've got this condition. There's nothing we can do. Thanks very much for coming in. Goodbye. And I was left on my own. And, and I was totally amused. By one, on one, one side. But the other side, of course, because I, I had all these experiences of yeah, my earlier life where I hadn't been able to see things like other people could. It suddenly made everything make sense. And that was quite a relief. So I, I wasn't in the total devastation 
state that I know some people get into with that kind of diagnosis because it, it really made sense of an awful lot that had been difficult. And instead of having to try and cope doing things that I really wasn't comfortable doing, I was able to stop. And many people find this rather odd, but yeah, I stopped driving that day. I had driven the day before. I actually nearly killed somebody when I was driving the day before my diagnosis. And now I knew why. And I knew that I'd had a lucky escape. And I knew that I never had to do that again. And I haven't. I've never driven since. And I it's sometimes frustrating, especially right now when public transport is so difficult to use. But uh, basically, I've, I've, I've been very comfortable using public transport. I'm happy to just hop on a train or a bus and go wherever I need to get to. Ken Reed. So how are scientists trying to find a potential cure for people like Ken who are suffering from this disease? Well, given that it's genetic, there's one type of intervention that seems particularly appropriate. Gene therapy is the introduction of genetic material into the human body to treat disease. And um, it's the most rational way of treating a genetic disorder. This is Professor Robin Alley. He's director for the Centre of Cell and Gene Therapy in King's College, London. In the case of RP, this condition can be caused by defects in over 100 different genes and the rational approach for treating the disease is to introduce a functioning copy of the abnormal gene. This usually involves uh, the engineering of a virus so as to remove the genetic material of of, of the virus, the virus's own genes, and replace that with the therapeutic gene. And the engineered virus, which is no longer able to replicate is then injected into the target organ, in this case into the eye, and the virus then infects the target cell, in our case cells in the retina, and introduces the therapeutic gene to those cells that are lacking a functioning copy of that gene. I'm sure I'm not the only one who who winces at the idea of an eye injection. What kind of unique challenges are there because this is in the eye? The challenge with the gene therapy in the eye is that the eye is a very sensitive organ. The retina is a very sensitive tissue and so it requires very precise surgery and delivery of the um, engineered virus. But actually the eye has more advantages than disadvantages with regard to being a target organ because it's small and it's relatively immune privileged. So we have less of an immune response compared with many other organs. And one's able to visualise gene delivery, so visualise the delivery of the suspension of viral vector through indirect ophthalmoscopy, and so can localise the the therapeutic drug very precisely. So I think, you know, we actually see that the eye is actually a very useful, it's a very amenable target organ. And in fact, that's why there are so many, there's so many advances have been made with regard to uh, gene delivery in the eye. Tell me about these advances. So where, where are we in, in getting to something that's um, available? So to date, there is currently, uh, there's over two dozen gene therapy clinical trials for a range of conditions that affect the, the retina. In fact, there are many companies now that are involved in in developing the technology and taking this right the way through to licensed products. And just 
a year ago, one of the first ever gene therapies to reach the market, first in the US at least, was in fact a gene therapy for an inherited retinal dystrophy called LCA Lieber congenital amaurosis, which is a, a form of early onset, childhood onset retinal dystrophy. And that was the very first clinical trial of a gene therapy for RP, uh, which we started back in 2007. And several groups have worked on this. One, because it was regarded by many investigators at the time as being one of the most amenable conditions for, for gene therapy. And, you know, we, we and others demonstrated that it's possible to use gene therapy to restore vision in patients with this particular defect. And one group's gone on to commercialise this and it is now uh, available as a licensed gene therapy product. It's available in the US and also in in the UK. It was approved by NICE. So that's a very exciting um, development for the field because we've seen the progression from animal models through to clinical trials now to, to licensed products. And, and that is, was a real boost, uh, not only for ocular gene therapy, but uh, in fact, for the whole gene therapy field as we, as we see it entering sort of mainstream medicine. The fact that gene therapy for eye disease has managed to make the difficult jump from the lab all the way to the clinic is great news for people waiting for a cure. But given that there are so many genetic variations at play here, it's clear that this is just the start. That is one of the really big challenges for the field. and There are so many different gene defects. So it has meant that Initially, research has focused on either the most common forms of retinal dystrophy or on rare conditions that provide a clear path to successful treatment so that may uh, be particularly amenable to demonstrate um, success a good trial readout, for instance, so that provide a good proof of concept. But the challenge will be it, it is so expensive to develop these treatments that it's difficult to envisage that there will be a treatment anytime soon for the 200 different forms of retinal dystrophy. Having said that, there are approaches that may provide a generic treatment for whole groups of retinal dystrophies. For instance, treatments that involve delivering a gene that slow degeneration. So many patients have very good function, but gradually lose vision as their photoreceptors degenerate and die. And so treatment strategies that, that aim to preserve uh, function, preserve the cells, may be effective for many different forms of dystrophy. So how long do you think it might be before treatments are widely available and what, what are the other big hurdles we still need to overcome? I think the main challenge is the cost of developing treatments. I mean, it's not just gene therapy. It takes £200 million on average to develop any new drug. And, and, and actually to take the first licensed gene therapy product, it wasn't far off £200 million to develop that drug treatment if you think of all the groups that have worked on it. And if we're considering some ultra-rare diseases, that's a huge sum of money to develop a drug uh, for a few patients. Robin Alley from King's College London. So gene therapy is looking extremely promising, with treatments actually starting to make it through to the clinic, and with more coming through the pipeline. And while that's ticking along, researchers are also exploring other avenues to save people's sight. Ken Reed, who we heard from earlier, was approached by a scientist named Roly McGore, a clinical lecturer at the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Edinburgh, with a rather ominous-sounding proposition. 
he asked for volunteers who were willing to give a pound of flesh to enable the research to progress. And uh, I thought, that's the least I can give. I've given a lot more along the, along the way. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm up for that. OK, OK, before you start worrying, it wasn't an actual pound of flesh. It's a procedure called a punch biopsy. It involves taking a small sample of living skin from a volunteer. And because the top layers of your skin are actually mostly dead, the sample has to go kind of deep. It's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but as Ken explains, he felt it was worth it. So I went along to Rowley's clinic in the Edinburgh Eye Pavilion and uh, the message had said he just needed some skin. And I thought, that's all right, you know, just a wee scrape off my arm or something, you know, just nothing too much. I thought just superficial skin, but... um, he said, OK, I'll need to give you a local anaesthetic. I said, right, it's OK, you're just going to take a bit of skin. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm not just taking a bit of skin. It went quite deep and uh, there was a fair bit of blood as well. So he took it off the inside of my forearm. There is still a, a, a scar there. It was that deep and that, that significant. I will have, I carry a mark of it for probably forever. And, and he cauterised it and put a plaster on it and sent me home. And that was fine. It just sounded like a really brilliant piece of, of research going on. It's, it made a huge amount of logical sense to me. So I was all for it. And um, it's still only research. It's got a long way to go before it becomes treatment. But um, as a potential treatment, I think it sounds really optimistic. So um, yeah, I was more than happy to let him get his scalpel into my arm. So why would someone trying to treat an eye condition need someone's skin? Well, it's all about trying to understand exactly how RP actually works, the molecular nuts and bolts. But I'll let Rowley himself explain. So I work on a particular gene uh, known as the retinitis pigmentosa GTPase regulator gene, or RPGR for short. And much like all the genes that uh, result in RP, not much is known about the function of RPGR. If we are to develop a treatment for RPGR-related RP, we need to understand what the protein does. And so uh, my research is focused on understanding its function within the photoreceptor cell. Oh, right. And how how are you doing that? I mean, RPGR, is it quite hard not to say it like a pirate every time? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So one method I've used is using induced pluripotent stem cells to try to model the disease. So we are able, due to work that began 50 years ago by John Gurdon in Cambridge, uh, which was continued by Professor Ian Wilmot uh, up in Edinburgh, who managed to clone Dolly the sheep, right through to a Japanese scientist called Shinya Yamanaka. Through that 50-year period of research, we now are able to reprogram adult cells to become stem cells and therefore patients and their unaffected relatives are able to give us their tissue be it skin or blood and we're able to reprogram their adult cells into stem cells. So the great thing about stem cells is that they are multipotent and when I say that what I mean is that they have the potential to differentiate into any cell type in the body. So I was able to recruit patients uh, with RPGR mutations from NHS Lothian and they very kindly gave me their pound of flesh. They gave me a skin biopsy, which I was able to reprogram into stem cells. And I was then able to use differentiation protocols that had been developed by different labs around the world. And I've been able to grow little mini eyes in a dish, some of which have RPGR mutations, the ones that the patients have given me, and some of which do not have RPGR mutations. And so now you've got these mini eyes in a dish, and how are you investigating them? 
So initially I looked at these mini eyes with a powerful confocal microscope and saw that there was too much actin in them when RPGRs mutated. Actin is the main constituent of the cell skeleton. So I then carried out protein screens and slightly more focused experiments to get a better understanding of exactly which other proteins RPGR interacts with and therefore how it controls this cytoskeleton. What I want to understand is what other proteins RPGR is interacting with in order to carry out its function. And so I carried out a screen of 650 proteins to see whether any of them were dysregulated in the cells that were derived from the RPGR mutant stem cells. Um, And I was able to identify a couple of proteins that were dysregulated. And that led me down a path where I further probed that. And I was able to find out a little bit more about RPGR's function. And so I think it's regulating this skeleton within the cell and the function of that skeleton regulation is as yet undefined but my work continues. So what I've now done is I've moved into an animal model because as as valuable as those stem cells are the little eye that you form is still very much a primitive eye and uh, retinitis pigmentosa is a degenerative condition that often takes several years to manifest. And so I've now developed mouse models of human mutations which begin to lose their sight as they get older. And so I'm using now a, a fully formed eye to try to better understand exactly what role that, that RPGR is playing. Amazing. And what do these little eyes look like? Are they like eyes staring up at you from a dish? Thankfully, no. So they're tiny and they are microscopic. Uh, What you essentially do is you float a little colony of stem cells off the bottom of a dish and they form a little ball of cells. And you then give them certain growth factors which push that ball of stem cells towards a frontal brain fate. So they become more like frontal brain cells. And then these this sort of tiny little ball of frontal brain cells has this inherent ability to form these outpunchings, these, these little outpunchings of eyes. And so from one little ball of cells, you might get three or four little eyes forming and they then sort of invaginate in themselves and form this double layered retina, which is microscopic. You can't see it. Thankfully, they don't blink up at you. They just look like little blobs floating around the place. It still sounds, it sounds incredibly complicated. You're taking something and deprogramming it, telling it not to be the thing it was before, and then reprogramming it again into something else. So how, how difficult is this and how, how often does it work? So it took a lot of research. Obviously, as I mentioned, those three scientists uh, beforehand to get where we are now, it took a massive amount of work. But actually now it's really very simple. So all you do is overexpress four genes that are crucial to stem cells maintaining their stem like fate. And you overexpress those in adult cells and they just then can reprogram into stem cells. Then as far as differentiating them into the eye is concerned, again, that is incredibly simple. A couple of growth factors which push them towards the brain and then it almost takes care of itself. These sort of little bunch of of brain cells just knows how to form an eye and it knows that whenever it starts to produce these eye-like cells, these retinal-like cells, they organise themselves, they fold in on themselves to form this little three-dimensional mini eye. Uh, It really is quite incredible that the inherent ability of these cells to, to do what they are supposed to do. And I, I did speak to one of your participants and uh, it sounds like you need quite a lot of skin. Yeah, I mean, I would describe it as a small punch biopsy, but the person who's being punched with a biopsy 
clearly describes it, <laughs> describes it otherwise. But yes, it's a couple of millimetre round punch. It requires a bit of local anaesthetic and it requires a little stitch at the end to close the wound. And from that, we then have an unlimited supply of stem cells. So although it's a huge undertaking for the patients, it's so valuable because we then can use these cells forevermore in the lab to research this blinding condition. And one of the uh, huge benefits of, of using uh, stem cells is not only are you using human cells, which obviously are more uh, replicable of disease, but also it means you don't have to use animals. And obviously we want to reduce the animals that we're using in our research. But certain things are just unfortunately require an animal model. Um, the advantage of using a mouse is we have all the imaging equipment that you would have whenever you go to see an eye doctor or, or an optician. We have that in the lab that's all been adapted to using the mouse. So we can carry out uh, retinal fundus imaging. We can carry out uh, what we call an OCT image, which is a very common clinical uh, tool to look at eye disease. Um, and we can carry out electrophysiology on those mice. So really, we get a much better impression about how these mutations affect uh, the health of the photoreceptor. So um, whilst we are trying our best to use less and less animal models as we go on, some things just require the animal to be used. Right, and so this uh, this is still work that's that's ongoing. Yes, absolutely. So the mice I've made, I haven't yet published them, but they're giving us a lot of good insights into exactly what this RPGR protein is doing. So it's regulating the cytoskeleton, but the function of that, we're starting to get a bit of an idea by using this mouse. Rolly McGaw from Edinburgh University there. So with all of these developments on the way, what is the outlook for people like Ken who are waiting for a cure? If my work led to a drug in 10 years, I would be absolutely delighted. It's impossible to predict. Um, we just have to keep plugging away in the lab, keep plugging away in the clinic and, and, and hope that eventually we'll, we'll find a drug that does work. In the 20 plus years, 25 years I've been working on developing gene therapy for retinal degeneration, we've seen huge advances. I, I think we couldn't imagine how far we could come in in 25 years. I remember when, when I first started, we were working out ways to deliver genes to the retina. And we were pleased if we saw just one or two cells that had taken up a, a virus and maybe expressing a gene for a couple of weeks. And we're now able to rescue dozens of different animal models highly effectively. And it's just a matter of time before this technology can be applied, I think, as effectively to humans and and so I would say it's a matter of time and money but we shouldn't underestimate the amount of time and money that that is required. I have no expectation of benefiting. I'm 60 years old. I've been diagnosed now for 34 years, been blind for 30 years, registered blind. Um I don't expect to see again. But I have a daughter who's a carrier. I've got excellent RP so she's a carrier of the condition. She hasn't yet got children, but if she has a son, there's a 50% chance that my grandson would be affected and would grow up like me. I am confident that he will not grow up like me. Uh, but there are other people with excellent RP or, and other forms of RP as well who will be able to benefit from this sort of treatment. And when the time comes for them, they will be able to get an effective treatment that will prevent them from going blind. So, yeah, it's not for me, it's for the next next and subsequent generations. And for those people who are going to lose their sight or know someone who's dealing with it right now, Ken's been there, done that, and he has some advice. 
The practical advice, learn to touch type. Being able to interact with modern technology and communicate with the world is just so important. The philosophical advice is it's a life sentence, not a death sentence. So get out and live the life and enjoy it. Ken Reid there. And before him, you heard Robin Alley from King's College London and Rowley McGaw and Chloe Stanton from the MLC Human Genetics Unit in the Institute of Genetics and Molecular Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. And thanks very much to Georgia Mills for reporting, to Dee Davison at the IGMM for all her help setting the interviews up, and to the MRC for supporting this episode. The MRC Human Genetics Unit is organising a public event for people living with genetic eye conditions for the MRC Festival of Medical Research on the 15th of June 2021. So, a date for your diaries next year. As we heard, genetic eye conditions affect so many people, so you can support groups that fund vital research into saving and restoring sight, like Retina UK and the RNIB. We've put a few links to donate on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. And finally, it's time for a quick look at what's in the latest episode of the podcast from Heredity, the Journal of the Genetic Society. The arms race between the highly toxic rough-skinned newts of North America and the garter snakes that prey on them is a literal textbook example of evolution in action. However, it appears that a piece of the genetic puzzle underpinning this interaction has been overlooked until now. In this episode, Kerry Gendro from Virginia Tech and Michael Haig at the University of Montana discuss their recent work showing that resistance to the paralysing newt toxin TTX in garter snakes is sex-linked and the implications this has for a system that's taught to almost every biology student. So it sort of suggests that females might be under selection to evolve increased resistance to the toxin in the newts because they're eating the newts. Uh, And males might not be favored. They might be disfavored to have these resistant mutations. And in fact, these mutations in the the sodium channel that confer increased resistance, they occur in a really important part of the channel that's really important for sort of the normal baseline functioning of these voltage-gated sodium channels in muscle tissue, right? They're really important for propagating action potentials. Uh, And it turns out if you have these TTX-resistant mutations, you're a really resistant snake, your sodium channels are kind of screwed up and they don't work as well, and your muscle tissue doesn't work as well. So we think there's potentially a cost to this resistance. And the males might be favored to have low levels of resistance due to that cost. They can't eat the toxic newts, whereas the females uh, might be favored to have these mutations because they can eat these really toxic newts. So it sort of changes how we think about uh, selection on males versus females. So the reason why the sex linkage of these genes is significant is that Sex-linked genes are inherited differently than autosomal genes. So being sex-linked has a lot of implications for evolutionary dynamics. For one thing, sex-linked genes tend to evolve faster. And there's a number of hypotheses surrounding why that is. So it could be because of increased mutation rates on sex chromosomes. It also could be because selection pressures are different. So females only having one copy means that one copy is always going to be expressed and always going to be exposed to selective pressures. So this can increase the efficiency of purifying selection, and it can also increase the efficiency of positive selection. What that might mean is that there could be stronger selective pressure on the females versus the males because they're only expressing one copy. 
You can find the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. That's all for now. Thanks very much to our stay-at-home roving reporter, Georgia Mills. Next time, we'll be tackling the thorny topic of epigenetics. So get ready to pimp your genome. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, it makes me happy, and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production is by the long-suffering Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.